everyone. Welcome back to the CEO Table podcast with your host, Chris Milan. Um, the CEO Table podcast is a place where we focus on all things personal development and getting your ish together. And today we have a very, very special guest. Um, she is an entrepreneur, writer, public speaker, and consultant. She was the first student from her state secondary school to attend Oxford University, and she didn't just leave it there. She then pursued her postgrad at Harvard University. She's a, a serial entrepreneur with a keen eye for social equality and opportunity. She's also the founder of Flyover Network, which we're definitely going to get into. Um, she's also a top writer at the publication Medium with tens of thousands of views on her pieces weekly. And she's also a previous contributor to the Huffington Post. She's a powerhouse. And today we've been blessed with her time. Renee Kapuku, hello, welcome. <laughs> Well, thank you, Chrissy. Gosh, it's always like really funny when people introduce me because I'm just like, oh, that person actually sounds like legit. <laughs> she sounds lit, right? Oh, wow, that person sounds legit. Crazy. <laughs> but no, genuinely, thank you so much for having me. Like, you already know I'm literally one of your biggest fans um, and love the work that you do, love who you are as a person. And yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, man. I'm really excited to get get into it i'm excited to have you so the intro there's a lot going on there we're gonna have to unpack some parts because you're doing a lot and we're loving it so oxford then harvard yes ma'am how why talk us through the entire process and your experience at both quite elite institutions yeah no happily happily so Guess we'll start with Oxford. Yeah, so as you mentioned, I went to a state school that really didn't have a history of going to any kind of like top university. They had like, you know, one person go in every now and again to like a Cambridge, but definitely didn't have anyone go to Oxford. And growing up, I always had an insane curiosity with learning, like not just learning for the sake of learning, but also kind of like the process and getting to become the best of the best in my field. Um, which is why I really enjoy writing and all the other things that I'm currently doing. But at that time in my life, I was one of those like really, really nerdy, geeky type of people who was just like, I want to make sure that I do super well in my exams and I want to, you know, go to university and stuff like that. Um, and also kind of like bearing in mind that neither of my parents went to university. So it was also a kind of like first generation type situation. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I visited both Oxford and Cambridge. So it was actually between the two of them for me. Um, got onto their free summer schools and went to both of them. Um, Cambridge kind of was like a village to me. And I was just like, I don't really want to go. It's a great, great institution. But I don't want to yeah. right. You know what I mean? Like I wanted a bit more like life. I grew born yeah. and raised in London. Um, I really loved the busyness of London and going to Cambridge. Like I knew that going to university wouldn't tell me, you know, spending the majority of my time there. So I was very, very keen to be at a place that was, you know, like it was a, a good institution but also a place that I could actually see myself at so yeah went yeah. to both the summer schools um decided on doing Oxford instead purely because it was only slightly larger um and then put in my application and that in of itself was a whole journey because no one really knew what they were doing when it came to like preparing me to go yeah I have a whole story behind the horror of my interview process <laughs> Um, where I basically had mentioned the thing about like when you apply to um, university and you mentioned like your personal statement that, you know, you do X, Y, Z. So I mentioned that I was learning about Tudor England, which I absolutely hate, hated at the time. And the person that was interviewing me was like a specialist. They had written books on Tudor England. Wow. And I was like, <laughs> As in, I thought this was it. This was the end. And I was fine with that. I was like, let me give it a good go, a good shot, and we'll see where it goes. So yeah, went through that process. And then... When I found out that I got into Oxford, that was probably one of the best moments of my life, like thus far, because first the relief was like, oh, okay, so I'm actually going to uni. That's, that's cool. I did. And then secondly, like Oxford, I was like, wow, like I'm actually going here. Mm -hmm. um, and in terms of the experience, I won't lie. My first year was kind of marred by my own insecurities and my own imposter syndrome. So, you know, being um, a black woman, but particularly from like a working class background in an institution that, you know, disproportionately favors um, white middle class privately educated students. I was always feeling like, you know, I was a misfit or whatnot, or like I was, you know, quota filling. And it was only until my second year that I really started to believe in my source. 
um, by force, mind you, <laughs> because having to debate, like genuinely the structure and um, the experience of the Oxford um, undergraduate degree means that you either sink or swim. And mm -hmm. at the end of my first year, I thought I was gonna sink, like I was sinking, my grades were sinking, everything was sinking. But my second year turned it around. Um, then I got to my third year and then I decided, I had always wanted to do a master's. I didn't think I would do it straight after my undergrad. But then I got to my third year and I realized I don't want to do what everyone else is doing where, you know, they're swanning off into a corporate job. Um, and this is not to say there's anything wrong with a corporate job. It was just like, I wanted to do more and I wanted to learn more. So I was like, well, I did Oxford. Let's do something a bit more crazy. Let's, it <laughs> Let's do something a bit more crazy. Mind you, I didn't know where the funding was going to come from because <laughs> tuition is like 52K. That's just tuition alone. And then... Mm -hmm living costs and visa and all that kind of stuff so i just applied um and then i applied last minute to like scholarships and genuinely god willing like actually got in so i applied for the kennedy memorial trust scholarship and it turns out they actually thought i was a good candidate which was great um wow and they literally covered all my expenses to go to harvard and yeah harvard the two i really enjoyed my time at oxford but i loved my time at harvard because like just the, the being in the US at that time um, and learning from different cultures, like different national cultures was just beautiful. So, yeah, that's kind of like a whistle top, whistle stop wow. tour of um, the journey as it were, but it was brilliant. It was actually brilliant. So initially you just said that when you were at Oxford, you had to get over your own imposter syndrome because it was a sink or sim situation. And I think being a minority in most scenarios, and then going into like such an institution and being even more of a minority, it's really easy to alienate yourself or think that you don't belong or you don't fit in or think that they don't like you. What made you take the approach of, I need to adjust as opposed to this just isn't for me? Mm. Um, for me, it was a, a combination of things. So at the end of my first year, I got my results for like we we have like preliminary exams and luckily first year doesn't count it's only your third year where you are tested on everything mm -hmm. counts towards your grade and I got my results and I just about scraped the two one and when I say scraped I mean like like literally just hanging um <laughs> on that two one really and Yo, I was looking at a couple of thirds and I was just like, no, this is not the Renee that I know. Like I was literally shunning all of like my social stuff to focus on my work. And in overcompensating by trying to focus on my work, I'd actually completely missed it. And I had forfeited a lot of my experiences that I could have taken up. Like there were a lot of kind of opportunities that came in my first year that I turned down because I felt like I didn't belong there. Mm. But then when I realized, I was like, university, as much as um, other experiences that you have in your life, was really an opportunity for growth. And I realized that this wasn't just about achieving, but this was also about growing. So it was really at the end of my first year, I sat with myself and I was like, the first approach that I had been taking where I was less confident and I wasn't really taking up opportunities and focusing um, a bit too much on my studies didn't work. So let's try the opposite. And I literally went in my second year with, I'm going to do the opposite of everything my intuition might tell me to do as a result of my insecurity slash imposter syndrome. So mm -hmm. In my second year, I ran for ACS president. God knows I was going to run for like junior committee, something like that. But I said, no, I'm going to run for ACS president. And surprisingly, I actually got it. Like people voted me in. I was like, oh, wow. God, it's all kicking up. big here. First, it's let's just apply for Oxford. Then it's let's just see if I can be president. Then it's, you know, maybe Oxford might have something. I'm loving it. Just, you know here and there but just <laughs> running these quick tests for growth because the worst thing that anyone can say to you in that's the one thing that I realized the worst thing that anyone can say to you is no and that's something that I'm even continuing to learn in my journey and like entrepreneurship and everything else is you might as well shoot your shot because no. it's either they say yes or no if they say no you know where you stand but if they exactly. say yes you could have passed off that opportunity just because you didn't want to shoot your shot. exactly and you will not die from hearing a no like after you like you build up this thing of oh my god what if they say no if i get rejected mm -hmm. and then when it happens just like oh okay well i guess i'll just try again or try the next thing exactly this exactly this yeah so, yeah i mean and that's even not to say that I didn't receive any no's during this process at all. So like when I was applying for Harvard and I applied for um, a couple of scholarships, 
there were some scholarships that told me no and I continued to apply because I had to I mean I wasn't going to fund it myself <laughs> 52k I was like no I'm not okay. going to myself I'm going to keep listen I literally when I was applying for scholarships I was literally like I'm going to keep knocking on these doors until somebody opens their purse like it's just having that resilience is so so important um in your life journey just in general because as you said like the worst thing that anyone can do is say no you won't die if somebody says no you might you know feel bad about it and that's okay to sit with that discomfort but it's better that you try and at least for me my life like one of my life mottos is I really don't want to live a life of regrets or I wish I had done or should have would have could have and all that kind of stuff this life is too short for you to be you know feeling insecure in a moment that could potentially impact your lifetime so 100% yeah wow Wow. And with um, Harvard, I know I've spoken to people before who've done university in the UK and the US and the experience of being black in both environments, even though we may feel like it's the same, it's so different when it's explained by someone that's experienced it. Yeah. What was it like for you being black in both institutions and being black in the US and the UK? Boy, first biggest thing that I noticed when I went to Harvard is there was a lot more black people just in general. And wow. It was crazy when people were talking about things like racial equality and stuff like that because at Oxford I had gotten used to being the only black girl in the room. Like in my college for the first two years of my degree I was the only black girl. Like I was the go-to black girl that you know no confusions. Then um, <laughs> my lovely lovely um, adopted college granddaughter came in and she was black and that was great but it was also unfortunate because people started to mix us up every now and again wow entirely different and we are the only two black girls in the college but alas um yeah so with oxford as a result of kind of like the access and outreach the um, institutional problems as well as the fact that it actually is a microcosm of british society in that you know we only make up three percent of the population here mm -hmm. in the u.s they make up a good 15 percent of the population so going to harvard i was just surprised by all the variety of like shades of browns i was like guys like this is crazy and hearing of their experiences as a black person um was really cool because i think oftentimes when we think um america we think just african america uh, african americans um, but there was also Caribbean Americans and there was also um, African Americans in that, you know, Ghanaian American or Nigerian American, um, you know, Congolese American, which was really, really cool. Um, so a wide range of like diaspora there as well. In terms of like my experience, it was very strange. I won't lie because there's layers to it, right? There's the whole I present phenotypically, if you were to see me in the US and I didn't say anything, I look like an African American or I look like a black person. Um, and I was treated as such, like sometimes, for example, when I was on the bus in a very like suburb suburban neighborhood, um, I would sometimes get, you know, certain looks or like, mm -hmm. I may be the last person that someone wants to sit next to. Um, however, when I started speaking, because I have the British accent, that also influenced the way people treated me as a black person. So, you know, when someone heard my accent when I was going to the grocery store, or if I was on the bus, um, they would be more prone to like ask questions or be a little bit nicer to me because it sounds as though I'm posh or it sounds mm -hmm. as though mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, I guess what they would associate as like working class black in the US. Um, and it was also interesting to engage with black people in the US in that, you know, it's like, oh, she's black, but she's also got this like different cultural element of she's also African, but then she's also European. So like, what do we, what do we do with this one? It's a bit... <laughs> I remember one of my friends, like when I first, first met her, she was like, oh my God, there's black people in London. And I'm just like, Girl. yes, I keep hearing this. I'm just like, do you guys like see anything outside of it's so oh, the US? Yeah, oh, it's such an interesting experience to hear how like on one hand there's the color side of things and then mm -hmm. it breaks into, so it's like a racial thing. Then by hearing your voice, it goes into like a class thing and it's just... Hearing the difference experience is so interesting because one of my friends, she was saying how when she was there, when it came to issues of race or racial tensions, she was always othered as in, oh, you don't get it. You're from the UK. Mm -hmm. when like, oh, no, we're struggling over here, too, honey. <laughs> as in, yo, that one even annoys me. Yeah. I remember I was in a class, a philosophy class um, that talked about dealt with that like, race. 
um, and it had a mix of people. We had like white Europeans, we had black European. Well, I was holding number four as the only black European. <laughs> and to be honest, I don't even consider myself a black European, but that that is neither here nor Controversial there. Controversial title. <laughs> uh, do you know what I mean? Anyways, um, yeah, there were white Europeans. There was like, you know, black Americans and um, white Americans. And we were talking about race in general, um, classification, stuff like that. Um, and I remember one person, a white European, saying, oh, well, you know, there's no racism in Europe in the same way that, you know, the U.S. has it. And literally, I remember the whole class, literally, black, white, everyone just swiveled to turn to me. And I didn't realize that I had been, like, knocking on the, um, on the table. And I was literally just, like, I literally, like, I was just, like, this is, this, this is not it. This, this is, we're not going to do this right now. And I will, wow. I will actually tell you why, because... Britain was the seat of imperialism. Like when I say the champions of imperialism across the, the driving force. And you're going to sit there and tell me that there is no racism in Europe. Wow. And the audacity as someone who has never experienced it to speak on it and speak for it. Wow. Mind blowing. Exactly. exactly. I, like I was absolutely like mind blown. Like I couldn't, like I could understand at least from like, Whenever I engaged with like, African-Americans, it was always interesting because it was adding the layers of racism across the globe and um, channeling the whole like diasporic experience. But having the conversation with uh, like trying to get white people from various different ethnicities to understand that racism is shaped by whatever nationality or whatever you know culture you come from seems to be an uphill struggle. And I don't understand why. Like, I just don't, I don't get it, but... Mm -hmm. Alas, alas. I mean, it's something we've seen with like Black Lives Matter UK, right? Or like Black Lives Matter in, um, say, Spain or France and all that kind of stuff. And it's just like, yes, racism seems to be very prominent in very particular areas in the US, but in the UK or, you know, even in, in Africa and the Caribbean, like it's, there's so much more to talk about that I'm just like, I don't have time for your ignorance, but mm -hmm. that's alas. <laughs> Do you know what? I find it difficult because I've always been often one being one of the only minorities and the only black person and the only black girl in a room. Sometimes I feel unequipped to have those conversations because essentially I just feel outnumbered. I'm looking around. I'm like, okay, well, no one's going to get it. So let me just stay silent because I don't have the energy and I don't, it's, it's almost an emotional struggle because you're having the conversation without trying to get riled up or to get angry or to shout or to be loud and to, you know, speak in a way that they can understand. And what I'm trying to say is how would you advise people to be equipped to have these difficult conversations in rooms where mm -hmm. they are the minority? I think first of all, define what you want your position to be. I think there's a lot of pressure on black people by virtue of being black to be the activist in the space, right? They always have um, to be in diversity. They always have to be that person. And I think, first of all, understanding that it's okay if you actually don't want to do that. Um, but if you do decide that it is something that you want to do, being bold with it and understanding that this isn't just a thing of like them not understanding you, but actually you trying to validate your humanity, which is very sad in of itself, but it's a big thing and it's really, really important. Um, and not second guessing yourself. I think a lot of stereotypes and narratives that come as a result of being a you know a minority but specifically a black person in a majority non-black working space is proclivities to over being over emotional or being angry like for us it will be the angry black woman it didn't i didn't realize this until literally my second year of university there's a lot of things to be angry about so i don't mind if you want to call me angry of course, why wouldn't i be angry of I'm currently reading Eloquent Rage. Mm. And have you, do you know the book? I've heard of it, but I haven't read it yet. So she speaks about, um, in the entry, she speaks about like how we're deemed as the angry black woman, how we actually have a lot to be angry about. So there is, like, don't fight it, be angry. Like, why is it that I always have to be politically correct to validate that I'm human, like, have mm -hmm. my experiences heard? Why do I always have to be the activist? Why do I always have to be dismantling racism? Why is the onus always on black people because white people don't experience it or they don't, like, it's because they're actively benefiting from it that they're less 
invested in dismantling it, right? No one likes to hear that they are benefiting in a system that oppresses people. And if you're benefiting, why dismantle it? Exactly this. I think for Black people, we need to prioritize who we want to be. We need to also prioritize our self-care as well, because this is draining work. Like, I remember... I was about to say a specific experience, but really it's, it's been a, it's been a lot, a lifetime, Chrissy, like, girl, we've been fighting for a minute and I'm t- like, I get tired sometimes. I'm just like, you guys are still talking about this same thing. Honestly, like, when- you know what? Sometimes I just sit back and my feet hurt and I'm just like, I don't deserve this. Ankle swollen and I haven't been walking. My ankles are swollen. Yeah. I'm tired. Like when the outbreak of, um, the most recent incident with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, came out, I just remember thinking, I'm really exhausted that these things keep on happening. And I remember so many people hitting me up about, oh, Renee, what are your thoughts on this? And my response to that was, I'm going to forward you the like hundreds of things I've written on this in the past and the things that I've done in the past, because there's nothing new here. I'm not rehashing the things that we have been knocking on your door with rats. Yeah, we've had our suitcases full. Open the door, give us room. Now you've opened the door, you're telling me to go and get another suitcase or some more things to prove that this is a point. I've like, we've been here, we've done that. So I think, yeah, as a black person navigating these spaces, prioritizing your self care um, and ensuring that you allow yourself to be who you want to be in relation to these spaces. So deciding whether you want to be the activist or not. Um, and then deciding and defining your terms of engagement. What is it that you will or will not tolerate? Like there's certain things for me that I just know that I can't tolerate and I will call out immediately. Like I really dislike microaggressions. I just, I will call, I'll make things extremely awkward for you. And that sounds like a bad problem. That's my favorite thing to do. Just ask more questions. Someone says like, oh, so why do you think that? If someone says, oh, do you know Stormzy? No, why would you think I know him? Why, why would you think that? Do we look like we're best buds? <laughs> Do you think that we grew up in the same area? I even grew up in North London. He grew up in South. What made you pay, pay, like, what? Where's the link? Don't Where did the link? Or if I say, you know, I'm from a particular African country, why are you telling me about your backpacking trip to South Africa? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't get it. Yep. Yep. It's one of those things where I think since I moved here, when I, I moved here when I was nine and it, it was, I moved from Jamaica. So moving to an all white primary school, that was my first like understanding that I was black. And it wasn't because I saw everyone looking different to me. It was through the conversations and through the small things people would say, and I didn't have a word for it back then. And I wasn't at all equipped at nine years old to deal with it. So it fell into the category of me just having like low self-esteem or not fitting in, but not quite being able to place why that is. And only when I was mm-hmm. older did I start to, you know, be able to add words to it. Um, so in regards to what you're just saying about, you know, what's been happening in the last few months, you are a as my sources may have it, <laughs> I consulted on workplace diversity. And I can imagine that the last few months have most definitely been exhausting. What have the conversations or just the landscape started mm. to look like now that people are opening their eyes? Yeah, opening, mm-hmm. it seems that everybody has some really dark or foggy sunshine. <laughs> and all of a sudden, clarity, light. Um, in terms of what it's looking like in the, in, in the workspace, um, but also specifically at the moment, like the startup communities that I work in, it's start at slash corporate entities. Um, it's moving to hopefully a more nuanced discussion of what representation and most importantly, retention looks like. So in terms of taking the top layer, the first thing that most people run to when they're looking at things like Black History Month or multicultural networks and all that kind of thing, you know, the airy fairy stuff, you know, like the brands like Pretty Little Thing that we'll be putting out. We're, we're here together with the two hands, one being black and one being white. Yeah, diversity. I'm sorry. I, wow. Just wow. So people are dying on the streets. People are not um, getting, like, I just, anyways, like, let me not digress with pretty little thing or um, fast fashion brands because we'll be here forever. But in terms <laughs> of what's that speaking to, this whole idea of brands and corporations and startup communities getting away with cosmetic diversity in that they're more preoccupied with their company looking diverse than actually supporting and retaining diverse talent. And that's been a problem. Like I've written extensively about it. I've spoken extensively about it. But we need to move away from this whole quota filling we just need more people to look represent, you know, representative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I need to think about the ways in which the institutions are actually built to oppress these people 
both on their way in the pipeline, but also when they're actually in these organizations, right? So I did a lot of work in like access and outreach when I was um, ACS president and much after, particularly for black students, because as a black student myself, I already knew the trajectory and I also researched extensively into it. And it wasn't just a access and we need more faces and we need more black people for our, for, you know, our photos and stuff for our prospectuses. It was genuinely a case of multiple institutional layers that are contributing to the oppression and systematic kind of like systematic prevention of black people reaching these spaces. So there's already a problem with the pipeline in that there's no access to information. There's no access to coaching to fill both university places, but also um, within workspaces. Um, there's no kind of like networking. I can't tell you how many people I know that are in positions as a result of nepotism and not merit, as much as people love to tell you is merit-based, it's not. Mm -hmm. um, I can't tell you the amount of people that I've seen that are extremely talented, but don't get in because of unconscious bias. The fact that the employers are more predisposed to choose people that look like them. The fact that, you know, black and brown kids or, um, you know, potential workers have to send in 70 plus applications more than their white counterparts to get to the same stage in interview. It's disheartening stuff. And that's only before they've even got in. Now they've actually gone into the organization and they're here to deal, they, they have to deal with all of these microaggressions of people asking about their hair or people asking them, you know, like, why is your video camera not on? Or what's this on your head? It is a bonnet, Sally. It is a bonnet. It is a bonnet. I have cane rows under here. I wear wigs to protect my hair. I don't want to have to explain myself to you. And then you'll have a puff. They'll now be asking, how did you get your hair? To, why is it defying gravity? All these kind of things that yeah. people don't, they shouldn't have to go through. And then you have the issue of mobility within these organizations, right? Why are we not seeing black CEOs? Why are we not seeing black partners? Why are we not seeing black people at the very upper echelons of any of these organizations? And that's because it's cosmetic diversity. Yeah. It's just the top layer in that they just want to look diverse and not commit to actually having policies um, and cultural things in place to actually facilitate growth for these black candidates. That's why the turnaround is so high when you look at startups, but particularly um, corporations like um, consultancies, a lot of their turnaround for their black talent is high. Like they get into the position two, three years down the line, they bounce because they know. They, mm -hmm. They can't stay here forever because people are crazy. Yeah. But yeah, that's, that's kind of like my two pence and the trends that I've been noticing. There's been more like consideration of the fact that, you know, this is more than just looking diverse and, you know, we need to think about all of these various layers, um, but it's going to take some time. And definitely my is. favorite, yo, my favorite hashtag throughout this entire thing, open thy purse. Open it. Open <laughs> your mouth is. Open it. Open the purse. Give me your bank details. Like, like <laughs> seriously though yo like everybody can talk the talk but when it comes to actually backing stuff because these things take money when we think about like the average um household earnings in black and brown communities specifically like i saw a start on like black african communities for example the average annual household earning was something like 27k that is one person's yeah. measly salary and that's not even like a good salary no. whereas like white communities are making what 200k plus what open your purse immediately this is crazy yeah crazy. and that's why i say it's like when it comes to diversity i always look at it as diversity versus inclusion like okay you look good from the outside mm. you're welcoming everyone in but when i walk into your building how do you make me feel how do you ensure that my needs mm. are met the same as my white counterparts and do you know what? it's so difficult to navigate because sometimes you don't even notice it yourself it's so obscured in the sense that if you don't actually look into it it'll fly over your head and you'll feel different you'll feel odd, but you won't know exactly why or how to navigate mm. or how to even fight it because as soon as you raise a problem you're the problem and again you're out the building that's crazy yeah it's actually crazy it is we'll get there it's a, it's an uphill struggle but it is i think we've had a turning point a few years too late however it's a turning point and i'm interested to see how it grows mm, but with that mm. being said we have the flyover network your baby talk us through it my child. um i even have multiple children at this point in my life <laughs> i feel like one of them 
you know the mothers that gave birth to like eight children at the same time (laughs) nourishing them all nourishing them all with like different different hands and whatnot but yeah in terms of the flyover network specifically um it's essentially an organization that is dedicated to helping um people from underrepresented backgrounds access not just opportunities but also coaching and um skills training to enable them to become the workers of the future and not in so far as them going to just occupy jobs but also being radical agents for change so we really equip them um having we, we already off the go start having conversations about things like diversity and how to you know make your mark when you enter work because i think one of the issues that i've always had with empl- employability programs social enterprises all that kind of stuff is mm-hmm. there's such an emphasis on teaching you how to fit the culture as opposed to being an agent of change in that culture mm-hmm. so that you can actually facilitate innovation and even looking at like the business case for diversity diversity is not just about again cosmetic diversity having people that look different but it's also about curating different modes of thought and that's kind of like where the philosophy of flyover network is currently resting in that we are trying to empower people from these backgrounds to feel not like imposters or feel that they have to fit in but feel like they can actively go to these workspaces actively change and actively contribute to the pace of innovation in these spaces and what are you guys currently working on a number of things in the in the wraps in the background um so we currently have been doing a couple of like online sessions and webinars where um we come together and we speak about essential digital skills because one thing that we have noticed is that for underrepresented um groups there's still a overemphasis on conventional careers and the main ones being things like being a lawyer or a doctor or blah 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 but the pace at which the world is changing means that digital skills ai automation tech is up and coming and if we're not careful and we don't make sure that you know our communities are given access to these roles these opportunities these essential skills they're going to lag behind when these conventional um, careers are automated so at the moment we're just focusing on getting as many people from these communities together and training them in digital skills and essential um, life skills so the most recent webinar we had was on productivity and it was actually crazy how many people were talking about like oh this is not something that we were ever taught in school and like community mm-hmm. stuff like that and it's like there are certain gaps in education that we're really hoping to fill particularly for these people from these backgrounds so that's kind of what we are currently doing and then kind of like in the future the vision for it is to really grow out into like an actual institute slash foundation where we're actually supporting people with some of their goals have an accelerator program where we're actually able to fund a couple of ideas that up-and-coming entrepreneurs might have um, and really being a hub for underrepresented people and communities coming together and being the real like drivers of innovation you're really wearing a lot of hats here and i really just have a quick question how like how do you actually do it all because <laughs> Sometimes I actually feel like I'm sinking and I just want to pause. And then I hear you doing all this and I'm just like, well, well. Girl, let me tell you something. I was about to say, I often, I, I'm, I'm about to even take off my, my wigs for the next few months because that's a hat that I don't even need to wear right now. That even, that even feels like a physical hat that I don't need to wear right now because I've been wearing too damn many. Okay, so the first thing that I would say insofar as like wearing many hats, adjacent to Flyover Network, I'm also working on something called the World Collective, which is um, my other child in that I love writing. Just added another one in there, guys. Make sure you're keeping up. <laughs> added another one in there, just a sprinkle, whatever. Um, yeah, I, the World Collective is all about empowering personal growth and development through writing and reading. One thing that I always noticed growing up slash um, after university and stuff like that is the decline in helping content creators, bloggers, all that kind of stuff produce work that's of high quality, um, as well as the decline of actually like reading other people's work. And, you know, the fact that the attention span, for example, is dropping and the fact that people's actual communication is getting really, really poor. Um, It started off as a book club and now it's become literally a hub of like hundreds of like bloggers and content creators and readers um, that just come together, we write together, um, do a couple of events. We speak about things like monetizing writing, how to make writing a business. We share opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, and the next move for that is I like love drama. Um, in my second year of uni, I also <laughs> I know Chrissy's going to look at me like, girl, why do you, like do you have a twin that's doing this secret? <laughs> um, <laughs> in my second year of university, um, I was vice cap- 
vice um, president of my um, drama society in my college and we did a couple of like student productions and stuff and at some point in the future I would love to be like an independent publisher of not just writing but also um, short videos, short stories, particularly from people from all of these again communities that I care about the most because they always lack the funding if mm -hmm. they have brilliant ideas. I mean looking at God, looking at, for example, something like Black is King, like the visual art, the beauty of it all, being able to not replicate, but give more people from these kind of backgrounds platform to do that kind of work is like one yeah. of my dreams. But yeah, in terms of the question of wearing many hats, I've always been a well-rounder slash jack of all trades. I don't, I found it tricky because when we were navigating a world where everyone is telling you, find a niche, find one thing to draw into do the one thing, do that thing, mm -hmm. choose one. And I've tried that. But the thing is, once I've done the one thing and once I've nailed it, do I stay in that one thing? Like mm -hmm. what do I do with that? And I get that it's a focus thing, but I realized that my true niche is not necessarily a traditional thing as it were, but more so a mindset. And my niche is personal growth and education in that it gives you so much opportunity to do the things that you're passionate about under a philosophy of being a lifelong learner. Yeah. And I think it's difficult to wear the many hats. I won't lie to you. There have been some times where, you know, again, I just want to like scratch my edges out. You know, I have that coffee, I'm tired. I don't want anyone to speak to me, but it's also incredibly fulfilling because it means that I can live a really a big life of like not feeling restricted and that's my thing i'm extremely rebellious which is why again i decided to apply to oxford again i decided to apply to harvard again i rejected the whole like corporate lifestyle right now yeah because i dislike being told what to do and i refuse to believe that limitations can be placed on human capital as it comes to doing the things that i care about so it was between do one thing and die at the end of it or die trying many things and I thought you know what I might as well die trying many things that one sounds who knows? interesting who knows in 10 years time check in if I'm still breathing then maybe it worked out <laughs> we'll see we'll see you know it's really interesting that you say that because I feel like I've always struggled to find one thing and again this idea is reiterated that I'm doing too many things or I'm jumping from one place to one place I'm not focusing I've always felt somewhat guilty for mm. not being that person that's like focus on this one thing and make it great because I just have so many interests and I find it very difficult to believe that in say we have a good 90 years in that 90 years I should just focus on one thing just like on one. I have plans for my 20s plans for my 30s and that's divided into two and I just I want to see as much of that as possible and I think with niching down I love how you highlighted that your niche is personal growth and um, education in a sense that this is the nation. Everything that you do fulfills that purpose, but you don't have to just be one. You can, you can, you can have it all and do it all. Well, we'll see in a few years, but from what we know now, you can have it all and do it all at the same time. But with that being said, um, I was actually reading through some of your articles on Medium because, you know, top stalker here. And <laughs> so I'm literally <laughs> blushing right now. Chrissy, read my articles, guys. I am tickled pink. <laughs> They're actually amazing because I was just like, you know, having a look around and I read one and I was just like, oh my God. And I read another and I was just like, oh my God. And I just kept going. So firstly, thank you for the value that you're adding to the lives of Black women and just putting us in places where our voices aren't usually heard and kind of just making us remember that anything is possible for us. Um, but with that being said, one of your articles was focused on entrepreneurship and to pull out a direct quote from it. From the explosion of disruptive techies to the overwhelming messaging around residual income, side hustling, and full-time entrepreneurship to build financial security, it seems as though the popularity of the nine-to-five is fast declining. I don't know if you remember writing that, but you yep, did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember and that one. <laughs> in a time where I think, especially online, this whole thing about, you know, even though this podcast is based around entrepreneurship and personal growth, and you're doing so many different amazing things, on social, it can seem like, you know, if you don't have 10 different forms of income, you're not winning. If you're not, you know, working your sleep, you're not winning. If you're not forex trading by <laughs> night <laughs> while working during the day, you're not winning. And it's, it can be so overwhelming. If you're not retired by the time you're 25 with two Range Rovers and a Birkin bag, you're not winning. And it's, it's a lot. It's, there's a lot going on there. 
give me some advice for young people today who kind of feel like if that's not them then they're not winning mm. um oh there's so many things that i can say to that first of Into all understand, understand that people on social media are it's a sickness it's craziness um <laughs> and social social media should never be used as a true representation of the world it is merely what people choose to reveal about themselves so not necessarily in that that's what they actually do, but a particular mindset that they may have or a particular problem or sometimes it's even indicative of some kind of trauma. Um, I don't know if you were, mm. I mean, me, sometimes I glance on Twitter and it, if I were to take it at face value, it seems that everybody is driving Range Rovers. Everybody is on a hundred K, even though the, you know, what was it? The medium, median earning of um, average media earnings was like 20 something K. And I was just like, so hold up. Like, Who's like, is everyone a Twitter part of that 1% club? Like, we didn't get the memo. Like, should I do better? Um, so the first thing I would say is take social media with a pinch of salt. Remember that when, you know, we post on social media, we're only posting a very, very small fragment of our actual reality, a thought, a passing idea, and um, mm -hmm. something we'd like to have in future. Don't take social media as fake like at face value and also don't base your life around it um one thing that i really do enjoy writing about is social media in that i love to remind people that people on social media a lot of them are fake a lot of them are being paid to propagate this you know whole idea of the hustle and the grind yeah. and as somebody who is an entrepreneur and somebody who is part of hustle and grind crew i'm telling you to not hustle and grind past 10 p.m at night i'm also telling you to not hustle and grind at 2 a.m in the morning because i think it's a sickness um during university time, I couldn't stay up past 10 p.m. to do any work. I, I worked a nine to five shift for my revision and I got a first in, in my there we go. I got a first class. I did the same for Harvard. I'm not I'm not killing myself as much as I love my goals. Don't you want to live to actually see them come to pass? It's, it's a sickness, really. And then this whole like 10 side hustle, like look, we live in a capitalist society, right? Where people's work, particularly on the part of like men, um, but also now women as, you know, women, the boss babe stereotype is now coming into play and people are now talking about being a female entrepreneur, female founder, all of these exciting terms that don't really, they're even a problem in of themselves. Yeah. Um, this whole idea of using money and material goods to, you know, as a manifestation of your supposed worth is a dangerous game to play. I can tell you, at least for me personally, right now. yo, listen, for me personally, I know that whether I am broke, if I had, a, if my overdraft, and trust me, I've been there. When I finished my grads, um, my graduate degree, I was broke because I couldn't work. I couldn't found a business whilst I was still in the US. I was literally um, on, what do you call it, my scholarship. I knew that when I came to the UK, it was like, oh, you have to take a corporate job or you'll be broke. And I chose to be broke for a bit. Mm -hmm. And I was still valuable. I was still intelligent. I could still, I was still, you know, very capable of making money, but I didn't find my identity in my materialist manifestations. It wasn't how much that I, I am valuable, whether I have zero pounds in my bank account or a hundred K and understanding that your worth is outside and your happiness needs to be found outside of social media and the fake weird Mm -hmm. expectations that they can project on you yeah. it's okay and don't let anybody broke shame you don't let anybody shame you into xyz and whatnot like especially for those of you who are interested in entrepreneurship and stuff like that for many of us we've had to, we had to bootstrap our brands from the beginning chrissy mm -hmm. i'm sure you can relate in the beginning bootstrapping funding yes. where you know what, i'm actually proud of myself because when i look back the amount that i have made and started without anything i'm just like you know what there's beauty in it don't think that when you have a little and you, you manage to build a lot you see how much you're capable of and mm -hmm. it's so interesting to see how like when people start business and say like 100 pounds or 200 pounds and the, the amount you can do when you have to think outside the box is yep, exactly this yeah it's exciting to see um i think when it comes to with my side of things because being an influencer has its it's it's a fun job but there's like i'm very careful to not to try and paint this type of lifestyle because I, I can't even keep up with it even in the sense of like going down to being like a basic fashion influencer the amount of clothes people are buying for videos i'm just like this isn't like 
it doesn't feel right. And there's so much about it that I'm very careful to kind of like navigate a space where I don't want to make people feel bad for being normal because social media is like, it's like life on steroids and it's so easy to get caught up in it. It's so easy to make it your whole life or base everything you do just on that. And it's tough. It's very easy to get like, you know, pulled into, especially this whole like girl boss culture and do you know what? Mm. I have a love-hate relationship with that as well. Because when people say, oh, yeah, like, girl boss Chrissy, you know, female dropping around, I'm just like, eh, I just... <laughs> You're a boss babe. In oh, the- so, God. <laughs> so, I, do you know, and I felt bad for not liking the titles, but there's something about it. It's what we were talking about before on um, the Live with Fiverr Network, how it's so easy to give yourself so many titles without actually putting the work in. And that's the thing with social media is that, it can seem like you're building this great life on there, but the work that needs to be done offline is so much more important. And I just need people to know that, it, yeah, it's not, it's not where it's at. It really isn't. And don't turn to fraud either. Um, oh God, please, please. <laughs> you know, some people are sustaining, literally sustaining these um, fake lives and fake profiles through fraudulent behavior. And it's like, you can't even keep up with the own lifestyle that you're living. Like, where's the sustainability in this? The feds will find you. <laughs> <laughs> if any of you are doing, listen, if any of you guys are doing food right now, you better stop right this moment because the feds will find you. Oh my God. Um, so with that being said, actually, I was going to ask you another question. In terms of like building a brand minus social media, based on your social media profile, I would not know half the things you do. And this is why I say that like, you can be great without having it. You don't have to like. You don't have to say on there to validate or to feel great. You've done mm-hmm. so many things, and the internet would not know. And in a in a kind of like a stage now where we're at um, the age of the social entrepreneur, where all the CEOs are, you know, basically kind of famous as well. Like CEOs are now like the cool titles. Yeah. How have you managed to build such a strong brand minus social media? Mm. Um, it's very much about having weight offline as opposed to just online, right? So the mm-hmm. fact that there are certain people, I won't lie, the privilege that's been afforded um, by going to places like Oxford and Harvard means that just by the fact of being in those spaces, I have relationships with people that are actually relative, like very important people. Like some of my mentors, some of the people that I've been able to connect with that pour into me, that are invested in me and my brand but more so in me as a like and my development has been super super helpful so like in terms of advice that i would give to anyone that's thinking about building their brand offline is genuinely find people to invest in you not monetarily but in your development it can even be like your peers and stuff like that your friends the people that you cultivate around you like it's crazy because a lot of the people that I would consider both friends and acquaintances have also either gone on to do some great things or are on the come up. And it's crazy because like couple years, like couple years ago, it was just like my G down the line or like my babes or like, that's, that's my guy. But mm-hmm. just making sure that you're aligned with good people offline is so, so important. Like one of my really, really good friends, in fact, probably my best friend, um, Courtney Daniela, go follow her on YouTube and all yes. that. Yes. Love of my life. I use every opportunity when I mention her to sing of her praises. Yeah, um, but I've known Courtney for like years now. We went to the same sixth form, the same school. Um, when I was applying to Oxford, she applied to Cambridge. We were best buddies throughout that. And being able to have someone like that to draw on throughout this experience and now going through entrepreneurship because she even owns her own um, business right now called CDB London. Having somebody who is doing something different, but has the same mindset as you, the same values, the same like capacity to grow is really important. So think about the people that you have in your circle, in your network, even Chrissy, after I got over fangirling her, um, be- <laughs> funny story guys, when I first saw her at um, an event that we were both speaking at, I was just like, I have been watching this woman for a while on like YouTube and stuff. She seems awesome. Um, no, with that being said, I was watching, I was like, how do I even talk to her? Like, how do I even, how do I even say? And the, ugh, when you approached me, my soul melted. Like, I just wanted to die on the floor. <laughs> Get and, out, literally. Yo, and she was looking cute as, as whatever with your little blonde waves and the white. I was like, girl, how do I approach this one? Um, but key learning from that, guys, is if you actually think somebody is really cool and, like, you dig with yes. their values and stuff, actually approach them on a, on a non-weird way. Like, <laughs> I've met a lot of... Oh, Chrissy, you know some people DM you very strange things. They are just yes, like, they do. Oh, oh, 
I recently had somebody in who that got. <laughs> I recently had someone that was incarcerated <laughs> DM me. No. DM me. I was like, first of all, how do you have connection from prison? Like this is anyways. <laughs> anywho, anywho. Um there's a couple of people who have reached out to me and I've reached out to um, over like online or like mutual friends that I think are cool people and just being able to go out for coffee and lunch and all that kind of stuff. Not on a flex of like, oh, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. But actually, I think you're a cool person and I just want to connect with you on that basis. Yeah. Um, so building your brand offline really entails you networking and meeting people that you actually like and like you um, and that can actually vouch for you as well. Like, even the fact that, for example, um, you, Chrissy, or um, Courtney, if either of you were to come up in conversation with anybody else that I was speaking with, I would be like, yeah, that person, that's family, that's cool, that's a mm. great person. Mm-hmm. That's even important when it comes to things like um, doing brand work, for example, being able to reference somebody that you know, because you actually dig them on that level, not on a flex of like, oh, I know this person, and with a clique and stuff. I really hate mm. cliques. Mm-hmm. I was when I was younger I was such a nerd like I didn't do cliques at all I just like people in general I like individuals so yeah yeah making sure that you actually have people that are around you that you vibes with is so 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 important so um, and also doing the work as Chrissy said actually do work like, do, like whatever no but Chrissy do you know what it is because people will shout about doing work online that they haven't done yep. if you are interested in social entrepreneurship not everything that you do has to be online go and speak to people go and run like office hours go and um organize meetings with people that are within that space off camera yeah like make sure you're doing the work or if you are for example a beauty youtuber it's not every day that you must put on makeup and go on youtube and blah 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 go and do like testers and stuff maybe do a giveaway offline like be committed to have an impact as much impact offline as you would online and the key question i could ask myself when i do my work is if social media were to vanish tomorrow, would I continue doing the work that I do? If the answer is no. That's a difficult question for me. <laughs> but I feel like even with you, Chrissy, like you're still gen like you're actually still a genuine person. You'd still have those mm-hmm. connections. You'd still be able to work around like I know that most a lot of your business is conducted through social media, but I don't I have never gotten the sense that yours is like just flashy on social media here is my life yeah. you have such depth to your captions you have such depth to your but yeah you have such a depth and even when you look at things like marketing trends and stuff like that people mm. are getting more invested in the stories of people as opposed to the big influencers and I think one thing that you've always done throughout like building your brand both online and offline is you were just so genuine like you'd still be able to go and conduct speeches at um, different organizations and stuff like that you'd still be able to work in a consulting role with um you know brands and not just in fashion but also in hair like you would still have the power to do all of these things and that's because you have a brand offline as well as online so and that's the importance of doing the work i think it's so easy again to just shout online and be like oh i'm this and i'm that and then when you sh- like when your phone turns off when your battery dies what do you have <laughs> That's why it's just, I can't stress that enough. I think, you know, everyone wants to form the perfect picture and make sure that online they look well, which social media is a great place. I've met some amazing people on there and managed to build some of these connections that we're talking about. But it's just so important that you have the foundations laid properly that if that was to crumble, you still mm. Um, I think that, what was I going to say? I lost my train of thought. With that being said, in terms of like what you're talking about with networking and building relationships <coughs> offline, I don't know if you've listened to Michelle Obama's podcast yet. Not yet, my queen. My so queen. the first episode is her and Barack. Oh, wow. And they were talking about the importance of, it's something that was on my head, but they were talking about the importance of community and how they wouldn't be able to do what they do or <laughs> have what they have without the people that they had growing up around them, whether that be their friends yeah. or their families always looking out for each other. And I think... Yeah. In a time with social, it's so easy to, you know, have that fake connection online where, you know, you DM someone, yes, girl, slay, blah, blah, blah. But actually forming those relationships and, you know, going out with people, meeting them face to face, having conversations is so important to build each other up. Because as you said, you and Courtney did this together. And it must have been so much easier to go through such experiences at Oxford and Cambridge, being able to confide in each other and help each other, like, get through the hard times and, it's just things like those that makes you realize the importance of community. Like it genuinely takes a village to, mm. to raise us. 
exactly this. As much as I don't like the aesthetic appeal of villages in the UK, um, <laughs> definitely, definitely takes a village. And it definitely takes multiple different types of people. I think even when we conceptualize things like mentorship, we often think of someone that's like 50 or 60 years old and all that kind of good stuff. And whilst it's helpful to have someone that's a little bit further along with you, it's also nice to like walk the walk with someone. It's yeah. really, really nice because being able to just, as you said, like draw on, confide, complain, um, bump ideas to see that, you know, you're not a crazy person. It's important. And I know we're living in a generation where people are like, you know, F, you know, fake friends. Uh, and I do this by myself. No one. No one. Yo, have you seen that meme of like that guy? <laughs> oh he's got like a picture of him like facing himself and he was like i don't trust anyone not even myself and i was just like bro you're, you're even lost like <laughs> this is where we're headed this is actually where we're headed and i think it's just because we, we spend so much time cultivating online conversations that we forget the beauty of in-person like i love in-person meetups and i i like i love meeting people i love getting to know them on an individual basis as much as possible and maybe maybe i'm lo- i'm now slowly becoming one of them old maybe this is going to be old-fashioned in f- five years like oh we actually met in person in person you didn't go to a virtual meetup no no it's, it's made more difficult um by obviously miss auntie rona um the unwanted auntie but even having one-on-one like zoom sessions or video calls or facetimes and stuff where you can actually speak to the person um, face-to-face, your authentic self, um, especially for those of you that feel the pressure to be, you know, dressed up and looking nice on camera and stuff like that. At one point, I fell into a place where I literally could not hold a conversation in person. And I was like, this isn't, this isn't going to work. Like, there's a life to be lived and I need to be able to project my voice. I think even with that, like, you have to be intentional about it. It's not something that's going to happen, whether it be building networks or building relationships or any of those things. You have to be so intentional with you know doing that type of work as well as much as everything else um as much as you Mm -hmm. want to build a business having those relationships is like it takes as much work keeping up with people checking in on them and even when someone can't do anything for you i think it's important to highlight that a lot of the time people want to network with people that you know could put them on the next level but sometimes it's just about you know coming up with your peers you don't have to like reach for whoever's on the next level Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. exactly this exactly this and i think that's why like friendships nowadays seem so like clicky or like they're not working out because some of you guys have awful character and and i'm this is not to say that i have good character i'm definitely working on mine this is why my niche is so great right personal growth i'm always growing guys see what i did there <laughs> ever changing okay let me stop trolling um but some, some of us have awful character mm-hmm. and we don't have, we are more invested in thinking about our future spouses than we are thinking about our village, our community, our friendships. Yeah. Those kind of relationships that are not necessarily romantic. What yeah. do they say about us? What do they reveal about us? We're so opportunistic when it comes to aligning ourselves with people that we forget that it's not just about what value they can bring to you, but actually what value you can bring to them. Like, yeah. And what happens when none of you can, you know, put each other on? What, like, what's left? What type of friendship is left there? Is it even a friendship or is it just a transaction? For me, I like experiences. I like to like do things with people. And I think we have such an optical obsession. We want to look like we're having fun when we're actually miserable. And it's like, that's not fun. It's not fulfilling. And the thing is, the same people will be surprised when people backstab them or don't like them and stuff like that. Exactly. The same energy that you give off is the energy that you receive. And like... Mm -hmm. It has taken me a while to like get to this point, but I am genuinely like super blessed and super happy with who I have in my life right now. Like the kinds of people that like genuinely around me are the kinds of people that I can like ranging from the kinds of people I can call at 3 a.m. saying that I need to dispose of somebody's body. Um, hopefully we don't get to that. <laughs> hopefully we don't get to that, that level. <laughs> I, played that <laughs> I actually played um, some kind of trick. You know those stupid questions that you ask people like, oh, if I were to kill somebody, would you help me hide the body? And I got a range of very interesting responses from um, I would help you hide the body too. I would turn you in first thing in the morning and all sorts, of, um, all sorts of things. I would hire somebody to like, what do you call it? 
do a hit on the people that are chasing you all sorts of responses it was quite enlightening so i give you, you mean. i challenge exactly i give you guys a challenge of asking asking your friends up such stupid questions um but yeah even that like i love asking questions that's even a good way to determine well not determine like you don't want to put your friends to the test or whatever but just think about the conversations that you have with your friends like what yeah. are the the times kind of topics that you have what are the kinds of um conversations and questions like one of my mentors like my cherished mentors he's only um two to three years older than me even though he behaves like an old man i'm telling you this guy is literally a late 20 year old in um he has like a 50 year old man in his body like and he's going 50 i literally cannot believe that there's such a man that is this looking this young with such old principles in that he's very philosophical very wistful and whenever we talk he always creates a space where i can ask any i could ask this guy any question and he would take me seriously and actually have we'd have a discussion about it so even having those kinds of people where you're able to discuss things not necessarily judgment free but with enough openness that you feel like you can create that intimacy is important like creating intimate relationships are important not just for your branding but also for your personal development because i don't know if you've ever come across any of those studies that they do obviously i'm a nerd so i was um watching the infographic shows and you know them random things that pop up on youtube i get distracted by the podcast. i love the infographics <laughs> i was watching the one on like um the top regrets or the top things that are important to people at the end of their life and mm. relationship with people is always the one always mm. the one thing that mm-hmm. they either wish they had spent more time on or they got the most fulfillment from so to me i was like i'm not gonna reach 80 and be like damn ain't nobody around me no more mm. you know i wish i had spoken to that person even romantically shoot your shot like stop being shy like yo i know um like when we're talking about like business entrepreneurship and networking and stuff like that it feels like an entirely different thing to like romance and spouses and whatnot but i think in a similar line of thinking like shoot your shot and actually like enjoy your time like don't be afraid to create relationships with people as well i think there's such a fear as well in like romantic relationships to create bonds because things like cheating has been normalized and patriarchy and mm. everybody mm-hmm. does doing people dirty and you know the rise the of the times are about all sorts i mean when the army rises to take down future i think i'll be on the front line but until then <laughs> um oh my god we're ready to defeat them at the final level of this entanglement um drama uh, this uh epi series i will i will be there but even just that fear of like not wanting to get hurt and stuff like that i just mm-hmm. think that we are living in a world where we are projecting so many things on social media because we lack the capacity to create these intimate relationships in real life say it again wow with airtime i've been talking <laughs> that was a nice ending though honestly i don't even add too much to that because i'll go into another rabbit hole but <laughs> enrich all the relationships in your lives friendships as well as romantic relationships. But my final question, because we're leaving with value here, three books that you recommend to the entrepreneurs, the personal growthers, the people just navigating life. Okay. okay. Wonderful. I love books, by the way. I love reading. Yes, I'm you do. Books. Okay. <laughs> so first book I'd recommend is The Alchemist by Paul Coelho. Um, it's basically a, it's a fiction book. Um, most people would recommend a non-fiction kind of like hard-hitting blah 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 but I think the beauty of the writing and the beauty of the message really reminds you of the importance of chasing your treasure your purpose slash calling in life and I recently read it I got read it maybe like two two three months ago now and it was such a beautiful and poignant reminder of doing that and going against the grain because we only live one life um yeah so the alchemist definitely um for entrepreneurs entrepreneurs what is any book you like right now? Any book I like right now. I've recently finished reading Homegoing, which I think was beautiful by Yajiasi. It was just a beautiful story about how generational things that happened a generation or two ago can so affect what's happening now. And it was mm. basically a narrative of like two sisters. One had remained in Ghana. The other had been taken away by slave trade traders. Um, and just charting that history down until the descendants actually met in like flipping the 2000s wow. um, and getting together. It's a beautiful story. So I would definitely recommend Homegoing. Amazing. And then the last one I would recommend at the moment, I would say a good book that I've read that I think is a good for personal growth. This sounds super, oh, I'm split between two. Mm. Tell us both. 
I'm split between The One Thing by Gary Keller, which is, I know, yeah, for somebody that's like a polymath and does many things, I think there's value in that it helps you with focusing on the one thing in the moment. I think being somebody that does many things, it can be a bit daunting or crazy because it feels like you have to do them at the same time. But the one thing really put into perspective the necessity of having seasons. So it might be a season that you're working on one thing and then a season after that that you um, work on another thing. So I definitely recommend that. And then the last one that I would recommend is um, It Didn't Start With You by Mark Wallen, which is basically, again, generational trauma um, and talks about how there are certain things biologically as well as um, psychologically that occurred generations ago that can lead to trauma later on that needs to be resolved. Mm-hmm. One of the great thing about like our generation right now is there is a renewed sense of commitment to dealing with our trauma in healthier ways, at least when it comes to like speaking about therapy and mental health, it's a bit more accepted now. Um, but yeah, that book really points to perspective the fact that many of us can be damaged or we may have been picking up certain patterns that we couldn't understand where it came from as a result of certain things that may have occurred in the past with or without our knowledge. So those are my top books at the moment. I love that list. Do you know what? I really appreciate, even though this is a personal self-help podcast, I really appreciate that the books weren't majority self-help. So <laughs> well, I mean, not self-help in the usual, typical, yeah. get rich in 30 days type of self-help. <laughs> so I really appreciate those. Um, I, I think I want to try them out because I'm doing this new thing where I'm trying to read a book a month. Um, yeah, I'm trying no promises but I'm trying so I think I'm going to check some of those out but thank you so much for coming on honestly I had a really good conversation with you I hope you had one with me too but I had I was this probably one of my favorite episodes so thank you so much for coming on teardrop uh, I'm literally <laughs> blushing I was fangirling sorry I'm, I just can't I can't I can't where can everyone find you um you guys can find me as one of those people that does everything you can pretty much find me everywhere um I think the most logical place to find me at the moment, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, mm-hmm. um, which is all my names. So Renee Kapuku on Twitter, Instagram, um, YouTube, and then on my Medium as well, if you want to check out any of my articles, um, as well as you can find the link to join my newsletter. Every single week, I send a personal growth newsletter, um, which has all the tips and tricks to help people with their growth in that particular week, as well as any kind of like articles and resources that they may need if they're feeling a little bit down, but also to power through the week. Um, so yeah, that's where you can find me. I was going to say something so inappropriate, Chrissy. I was like, well, I don't have an OnlyFans. What else is there for me to, what else is there for me to promote? <laughs> I'm good. I can't promise I'm not going to cut that out. <laughs> no, you're good. You're good. You're good. You're so good. <laughs> I was just trying to think of the platforms. I was like, Pinterest, I don't have an OnlyFans, so I can't say <laughs> But those are the main, those are the main ones. <laughs> I'm glad that's where we can find you.